You know, the hope of every Christian is really based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? All of our hope is bound up in his person, and all of our hope is bound up in his resurrection from the grave. Christ's resurrection from the grave guarantees our resurrection from the grave. Certainly you remember in the Gospels statements like this in John 14, 9, when Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. In other words, because he lives and because of our union with him, we also will live even in the future. Jesus, of course, you remember before he had went to the cross, even before the death of Lazarus in John eleven twenty five, said that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall, what? Live. He's the resurrection and the life. Paul, of course, in that grand statement in 1 Corinthians 15, said if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless or vain, and you are still in your sins. He said, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Grace Church, is the single greatest event in the history of the world. And we're here today to celebrate that. I believe that with all my heart. It is the single greatest event in the history of the world. You might say, well, what about his birth? Yeah, maybe his birth is miraculous. But his resurrection from the grave, the fact that he conquered the grave, the fact that he conquered death is what provides our hope. I want you to take your Bible this morning. We read it earlier and open to Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 28 as we turn our attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And what I want to do, as we read earlier, is take you into that first resurrection appearance. Oh, there were many appearances. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he was seen by all the apostles. He was seen by James. He was seen by the apostle Paul. He was seen by 500 at one, more than 500 at one time. But what I want to do with you today is take you to the first resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, as you open your Bible and you're in Matthew 28, remember that Matthew writes his gospel for one point, okay? He's writing from one standpoint. He presents Jesus Christ as the king of Israel. Therefore, his account of the resurrection is selected to set forth that theme that Christ is the king. Now, what's interesting, and it's true of all the gospels, is Matthew's gospel doesn't end with the cross. You know that. It finishes with the resurrection. But it doesn't even just finish with the resurrection. It finishes with a commission to you as his disciples. Now you remember three days earlier, just on Good Friday that we celebrated in here, what a bleak Friday it was. The sky went dark, 
And there on the cross was the Savior dying for our sins. Of course, he had been beaten. He had been mocked. He had been spit upon. He had a crown of thorns thrust into his head. He had spikes driven through his hands and through his feet. He was put up next to criminals. It's really hard to believe that the same one who would gather children into his arms, the one who touched the leper, the one who healed all form of disease, the one who brought Lazarus back from the grave, the one who fed 20,000 in one sitting from five loaves and two fish, was now dead and crucified on a Roman cross. What's interesting, though, when you look back at all of the Gospels, is that Jesus continually said that the king must suffer and die. In fact, he said in Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he said in Matthew 16 that he would be killed, and on the third day he would be raised. But remember after he said that, Peter took him aside and begin to rebuke him and say, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So as he began to tell him about his suffering and on the third day that he would rise, they just didn't get it. Next chapter in Matthew 17, he said, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And it says in Matthew 17, 23, that they were greatly distressed. So on the one hand, they just said, let it never happen to you. And then in the next chapter, they were greatly distressed. When you think about the the disciples before the cross, just think about what they were facing. Judas had betrayed him. Peter had denied him. All the disciples had fled from him. So I would say maybe as we turn to Matthew 28, maybe it's no wonder that In his first resurrection appearance, he appeared to two women. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. It's really just a beautiful account of this first appearance. It's a very tender account, a very personal account, uh, an unbelievable account. But it was these two women that our Lord appeared to first. And I think that's striking to me. It's an account filled with emotion. It's an account filled with an eyewitness account. And you might ask, what happened in that first resurrection appearance? What took place when he rose? And again, there's many appearances, but I'm going to take you to the first one. What happened? And so I want to draw your attention to Matthew 28, 1 through 10. And what I want to do is just look at two infallible testimonies that display the king's conquest from the grave, okay? Two infallible testimonies that display the king's conquest from the grave. And then, of course, those testimonies demand a response from you this morning. So as we walk through this account, as we look at the testimony, both of the angel, and then we look at the testimony of the Lord himself, It's going to demand a response from you. And I suppose there could be different responses, but in this text, there's just to be one that is right and proper. But let's look into the text. First, the testimony of the angel. The testimony 
of the angel. Look at the text with me in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now the text is very clear that it's after the Sabbath. We know that the Sabbath would have been from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. So when it says here in the text, it's after the Sabbath, it's Saturday. It was complete, but it was beginning to dawn, as you can see there in the text, on the first day of the week. And so it's Sunday morning. And this one says it's, it's the dawn. The other gospels tell us it was very early. In fact, one of the Gospels says that before it was dark. So here's what we know. It's Sunday, and these two women are up after the Sabbath. It's Sunday morning, and they come, it says, to see the tomb. Now, you're reminded as we just walk into this text that Jesus has been in the tomb three days now, obviously. He was placed in that tomb on Friday. He was in that tomb all day Saturday, and now it is Sunday morning. It is the third day. Now, that's significant by itself because he kept telling them in Matthew 16, Matthew 17, that after the third day, I'm going to rise. It's that third day. Now, the text says there that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And I'm always touched by that because of the tenderness of that. Don't forget that Mary Magdalene was the woman who once had seven demons that possessed her, seven demons cast out of her. It's one thing to be lost in the world. It's another thing to be demon-possessed. And then it's another thing to have a group of a legion of demons that filled this woman, that Jesus Christ had cast those demons out. Can you imagine the love and affection that she had for the Savior? But the text says in 28.1, look at it again, the other Mary went to see the tomb as well. And so there's two women. There's Mary Magdalene and there's the other Mary. You say, well, who's the other Mary? Look back in chapter 27. You'll see it there. Let me just build this a little bit. It says at the death of Jesus Christ in 27.55, there were also many women there looking from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, here it is, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And so you can see they were there at the cross. And so here were these women. They, many women in the gospel, it tells us in verse 61, if you look there, it says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite of the tomb. And so they went from that Friday and they went all the way to the tomb where they had laid the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it's just enough. At least you're saying, okay, there's two women. It's Mary Magdalene and it's the other Mary. But where the disciples are, we don't know. They're fearful, they're afraid, but is it not touching that on this resurrection morning, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to make his first appearance to these two women? Now, it's not just these two women. As we read in other Gospels, it, Mark adds this in 16.1, there was a woman also at the tomb on that Sunday named Zalame in Mark 16.1. Luke adds in his Gospel, there was another woman in 24.1 by the name of Joanna, actually 24.10. And so there was a group of women there, but Matthew's focus is on Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Now, you ask, what were those ladies doing? 
What were they there for? Were they there for the resurrection? And the answer is no, they weren't there for the resurrection. Look at the text. It says very clearly why they were there. The other Mary, they went, it says there, to see the tomb. They go on the early morning there to see the tomb. They're not there for the resurrection. They didn't know that Jesus Christ was going to be raised from the dead. They went to just go be with their Savior. They went to go be with the Lord. They went, it says, to, to see the tomb. But there's a little more of that in the other Gospels. Mark tells us very specifically why they went in Mark 16.1. It speaks of these two women, and it says that they brought spices so that they might go, and the text says, anoint him. That's why they went. They get up before the sun even rose, and they go to see the tomb, and they go for this purpose that they might anoint him with the spices. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us as they're on their way to the tomb, they're wondering with each other who would roll the stone away. In other words, they wanted to get in and anoint his body one last time. You might ask the question, was Jesus anointed? And the answer would be yes, he's already been anointed. In John 19, 39, you remember it says that Joseph of Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, were bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, and they took the body of Jesus on that Friday, right, and bound him in linen with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, So remember, they had to get Jesus down from the cross before they celebrated the Passover. And Joseph of Arimathea stepped in. And interesting, Nicodemus, who earlier in John 3 came at night, and they prepare the body of our Lord Jesus Christ with spices. So then you might ask, well, then why would the women come back to look into the grave and anoint him once again? Well, do you remember that, beloved, when we were just in John chapter 11 this last month, that the Jews believed that on the fourth day after death, the spirit left the body permanently because the body was so decayed. That's what they believed. You remember Martha's response when he wanted to open the tomb of Lazarus, her brother, remember Martha said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead how many days? Four days. It could be that these just women, they come back. They come back just one last time. They just want to maybe just anoint him one last time before the fourth day when that spirit would depart. And so they come on this third day to Jesus' grave because they realized that they only had one more day to anoint him before his body utterly decayed. I think it's just precious. One last time, they wanted to reach out in love. One last time, they wanted to give sympathy to the one that they absolutely adored. And even though he was dead, they wanted to preserve his body for those last remaining hours. And again, I'm just going to say to you, you'd think the disciples who followed him for three years would have been the first ones there. No, it's not. It's, it's these two women. And as they're making their way to the grave, look what happened in verse 2. It says, and behold, and it's a, it's a strong statement there, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and he sat on it. 
there was a great earthquake. And behold, in other words, God's intervening into this. This is the second earthquake in Jerusalem in the last three days. In fact, you remember back in Matthew 27 and verse 51, when Christ died on Friday, it says there that the earth shook, the rocks split, the graves were opened, and people came out of the graves three days prior. Now here, three days later, there was another massive earthquake. You say, well, the earthquake was caused by the resurrection. And my answer is no. Look at the text. It's not the resurrection. It just says, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and he sat on it. It was the angel's descent from heaven. This is an angelic creature. This is the power of God being released. And as the angel comes down from heaven, as he descends upon this grave, it created a massive earthquake. In other words, the word in the Greek is seismos. We get our thought there, seismic waves. The the plates are shifting. And here, it wasn't plates. It was the presence of this angel. Now, it's interesting. You'll see it in verse 2. It's not that... He's the only angel. There's another account where there were two angels in the tomb. But clearly here in Matthew's gospel, it says, For an angel of the Lord descended upon it. And you say, well, what did the angel do? Well, look at the text again. It says there that he rolled back the stone is what it says. Now you say, well, why would he roll the stone back? Well, it was a massive stone. We know that because the women were wondering if it's just us women, who will roll this stone away? He came and rolled this stone back. And you say, well, why did he do that? You might think, well, he did that to let Jesus out. And I would say that's not what the text said. Jesus was already out, okay? He came back and rolled the stone away. Jesus had already risen. I mean, you would reason with me. He didn't have the power to raise himself and then stand on the outside of the tomb knocking and say, would somebody roll this stone away? He's so powerful that he rose himself by the power of God. But this angel comes here and he rolls the stone away. Jesus didn't need someone to help him escape. You say, well, how did Jesus get out then? Well, the text doesn't say. But most likely, he exited the tomb in the same way that he entered the room where his disciples were meeting eight days later. Do you remember that? In John chapter 20, in verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And as the doors were locked, and as those disciples are in a holy huddle, the text just says that he came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. It's my thought, beloved, that, he, that the same way he entered that door after his resurrection, is the same way he exited the tomb. Linsky, the commentator, said, silently, invisibly, wondrously, gloriously, Linsky said, the living body passed through the rock. In other words, God Almighty performed another miracle. He raised his son, and then somehow he changed the molecules, and Jesus could just move through the rock. He had been raised from the dead. 
Listen, if you're here this morning and you don't know this one, understand this is the testimony of the scripture. The living body just passed through the rock. So then you may ask, well, then why did the angel open the tomb by rolling the, away the stone? Listen, the angel opened the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in, right? And not even just to let the women in, to let the whole world in, to let you in even this morning that Jesus was no longer there. That's why he rolled the stone away. Jesus wasn't stuck inside there. He just passed through the rock. He wasn't there, so the angel rolls it away. You say, well, what happened next? Well, look at it at the end of verse 2. I don't know why, I just think this is cool. He rolled back the stone and he what? He sat on it. (laughs) Just kind of dramatic. This is an emphatic statement of triumph. And I think what's hilarious is back in chapter 27 in verses 62 through 66, there's a bunch of verses there that talk about their ability to secure the tomb and the lengths they took to secure that tomb. And here's this angel touching down at this place. He rolls back the stone and he's got power over it and he just sat on it. Say, tell me more about this angel. Well, look at the text in verse 3. It says that his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. In other words, there he was on that rock and it was brilliance. It was dazzling, if you will. It was almost like the picture of God when he would reveal his character, a flashing brilliance of the character of God. But this is an angelic character. And so he's there, and the text says his appearance was like lightning. His clothing, it says, was white as snow. It's a symbol of God's purity, of God's holiness, of God's virtue, if you will. And so here was that angel of the Lord. What a moment that was. He said, well, what happened next? Well, look at verse 4. And for fear of him, verse 4, the guards trembled. And they became like dead men. In other words, there is a seismic quake, not only on the ground, but there was a seismic quake that took place in these men's hearts. Listen, all I can tell you from the language and from the wording is they were absolutely traumatized. Traumatized. This angel touches down and they fell into a coma out of sheer terror, out of fear. And then what's touching is the angel then addresses these women as these guards are are just laid out. Look what he said in verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. I love that. Do not be afraid. The guards can quake and shake with fear, but for you two, Mary Magdalene and Mary I don't want you to be afraid. Ever so gentle is this angel. He said, I know you've come and you seek for Jesus who was crucified. But remember this classic statement. Look what it says in verse 6. The angel went on in his testimony and said, He is not here for he has, what? Risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. What a wonderful statement. 
you come see the place where he lay. He brought him into the tomb. He brought the women into the tomb. Again, it's not to let Jesus out. It's to let these women in. It's to let you in. It's to let you know that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. And that must be one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. He is not here, for he is risen. That's the testimony of the angel. Now, you know this, that throughout history, there have been theories, multiple theories, to disprove the resurrection. I won't share multiple theories with you. I'll spare you from that. But people have to come up and, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? And so sometimes people who can't believe in the supernatural have to come up with theories to shoot down the resurrection. And one of those theories, have you heard this one, is the swoon theory. And the people who hold to the swoon theory believe that Jesus Christ, have you heard this one, actually never died is what they say. They claim that he went into a coma because of the shock from a great loss of blood and the trauma that his body endured on the cross. And when he was removed from the cross, he was then laid in the tomb, and the swoon theory espouses that the aroma of the spices and the coolness of the tomb supposedly revived him. It is then asserted that he somehow came out of the grave fooling the disciples into believing that he had been resurrected. But, but it's foolish, is it not? All the early records of the scripture are emphatic that tells us that our Lord had died. The women knew that he had died. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus must have known whether he was dead when they were carefully wrapping his body in those linens and and anointing him. They certainly would have noticed any sign of life, even considering the care which they had handled the, the body. In addition to that, beloved, this is so foolish because the Romans basically were expert executioners. They knew when someone was dead. Do you remember on the cross, they didn't break the legs of Jesus because it was obvious that he was already, what, dead. And when they rammed the spear into his side, out came from his side, what, water and blood came out. And they knew for certain that he was dead. Once one historian said, if the swoon theory is to be believed, Jesus would have to survive the severe beating, the crucifixion, with further loss of blood, a mortal wound uh, into his side. He would then have had to survive entombment with over 70 pounds of spices packed about his weakened body. He then would have had to survive three days without food or water. He then would have to wake up in the dark tomb and without any medical assistance move the stone walk out of the tomb he would then have to overpower the entire roman guard then walk seven miles to emmaus on feet after they had been pierced with nails i don't think so i don't think so it takes more faith to believe that doesn't it listen he beloved was raised from the dead praise god i mean beloved the grave could not hold him The angel's testimony is this. He is not here. He is, what? Risen. In fact, look at just one point, little one, in verse 6. He has risen, the angel said, as he, what? Said. 
Beloved, this was fulfilled prophecy. Everything he told them in his ministry came true. He kept telling them, I'm going to be delivered up. I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be raised up, if you will. And then on the third day, I am going to rise again. And so he fulfills the prophecy. You say, what did the angel tell these women? Well, look at it in verse 7. They said, then go quickly the angel said, and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. And the angel said, see, I have told you. In other words, here's the angelic proclamation. I don't want you to stay here. I don't want you to weep. I don't even want you to pray. I want you to go and tell. I think it's interesting. I think there's something there for us fascination with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ always gives way to proclamation. In fact, that's one of the responses even today. The angel says, listen, don't stay here. I want you to go back. I want you to tell the disciples. And then I want you to go to Galilee because Jesus kept saying in the gospels, I'll meet you after my death in Galilee. And there you will see them. And the angel said, I've told you. In other words, he said, you will see me if you go to Galilee. See, what did they do? Look at verse 8. They departed quickly from the tomb. Now, you, you reminded us we're in this text here. They've not seen the Lord yet. They come, and it's the angel. He sat on the stone that was rolled away. He brought him into the tomb. And remember, the other gospel says that his linens were right there on that shelf, if you will, that they had placed him. The... The part around his head was, was folded up, but they had not seen the Lord. And so here in 20, 28, 8, they departed quickly from the t- tomb. And it says, with fear, I love that, and with great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. You say, well, Scott, why does it talk about the fear there? Well, I think we get that. It's not hard for me. They, they're looking at an angelic creature. They're looking at guards, I'm thinking, laid out on the ground. And they're looking at this angelic creature who is dazzling, who is brilliant, who is bright, whose clothes are so white that it's stunning. And so this angelic creature is talking to them. And when they depart, they depart, it says, with fear, but it departs, as David said this morning, with great joy. And so they go with great joy and they ran to tell the disciples. That's the angelic testimony or the angel's testimony. But it gets better because the second powerful testimony is the testimony of our Lord. You say, well, what happened? Well, look at verse 9. Here's a second behold. (laughs) I don't know why this just strikes me. It says, and behold, like exclamation point, Jesus met them and said, what? Greetings. Now, can you just imagine being there? They're sitting at the foot of the cross, watching their Savior die for their sins. Then they're there with Joseph and Arimathea, Joseph and Nicodemus, And they're watching them put him into the tomb. And now they go to the tomb and they're not sure how they're going to get into the tomb. But they get there and the angel rolled it away and he's sitting on it. 
And then he says, come in. I've opened the tomb so you can see that he's not here. And now this says that Jesus met him and he said, greetings. Now, to me, it's a little bit interesting because I would think that how, what would you say if you were Jesus? I mean, that's not a fair question, is it? I mean, what do you think he would say? I mean, I would have thought he might have said, hail, I'm here. Uh, You know, I might have, I think he might have said, I've conquered death. I've defeated sin. It's, it's me. I've defeated the flesh. I defeated the devil. But actually what he said was, hello. That's what the word means. He said, hi. Don't forget that. There's just something so tender. He doesn't scare him. He just greeted him with a hello. He, really, that's what that word means. It says here in the text, greetings, but it just, it's a normal, customary greeting. They encountered the resurrected Lord, and he said, hello. He said, well, how did they respond? Look at verse 9. It says, and behold, it says, they, they, he said, met them greeting, and they came up to him. They took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Can you imagine that? It's Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. He greets them, and they drop to his feet. Say, why? I think affection. There's just something about these two women. And they were there. Maybe I don't want to make more of it. They were there. But it was affection. Out of love, I think, for the Savior. Out of loyalty for him. I mean, maybe they thought that he left them once before and they grabbed his feet and they said, you're not going anywhere now. I don't know. But they, they want to assure themselves that, they, that he won't leave again and so they begin to cling to him. And they cling to his person. And I would just add a note to you on that. You say, well, Scott, they grabbed his feet. But it verifies that his risen body is substantiated, is it not? They're not grasping after a ghost. They're not clinging at some spirit being. In fact, there's a lot of Bible teachers today in America that won't preach the literal, physical, bodily resurrection from Jesus. They've discounted it. They said, in other words, they're they're preaching in pulpits today, but they're saying it really doesn't matter that he rose. What matters is the spiritual truth that we get out of it. But listen, I'm telling you, they they grabbed his feet. This is not a ghost. This is not some dream. This is the person of Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave. And it is a tender moment. And these two women are the first to witness the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just for a moment, can you imagine their joy? Can you imagine their joy? Can you imagine being at the foot of the cross? And then can you imagine they take him off and now they get to the tomb, he's not there. And now as they're going back to tell his disciples, Jesus greets them. They grab his feet, but it's not all. Look at it in 28. It says in verse 9, they took hold of his feet and they, here's what it says, they worshiped him. They worshiped him. It's just a great word. It just speaks of adoration. In other words, worship is the concept of praise. It's the concept of glory. It's the concept of honor for his greatness. 
Beloved, this is the risen king. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. They grab his feet. I think they wanted to cling to him. Remember in the other gospel, he he had to say, stop clinging to me. And they worshiped him. But look what our Lord tells him in verse 10. There it is. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. What a note of tenderness. Say, why is that tender? You know, I mean, is it possible that you could have thought that he would have rebuked the disciples? Hey, ladies, I'm glad you're here, but where's the other 11? He doesn't say anything. In fact, you can see it there in the text. It says, go and tell my brothers. I mean, Peter had denied him. The disciples had bailed on him, but yet he calls them brothers. So, beloved, here it is. We have two infallible testimonies that display the king's conquest from the grave, that display his power over death. And the question that the text is asking you this morning is, how should you respond to this? I suppose that people could respond different today. Some people just respond in unbelief to this. They just refuse to believe it. You know, like today, and I don't mean this uh, pejoratively, but I exit from the breakfast, driving out of where we had breakfast, and I pass the golf course. <laughs> and there's men with their links hitting golf, golf balls when Jesus Christ has raised from the dead. Maybe for some of them it's unbelief, but maybe just for some of them it's just indifference. Yeah, I think today's Easter. For some people today, it's about Easter bunnies and chocolate. For some people, they're going to respond to this and rationalize its truth. In other words, they can't comprehend the supernatural, and so they're going to disprove or discount the resurrection. Some people, I suppose, are going to respond in doubt. In other words, they they don't have enough of the facts, even though you're going to have to look at me and tell me I'm a liar this morning from the Word of God. You're going to have to say that the word of God is lying if you're not going to believe this. And so he's moving us. And for some people, it's just hostility. And they do everything they can to seek to discredit the resurrection. But these women, and I think it's the only appropriate response, believed him. They worshipped him. They adored him. They praised him. They submitted their life to him. And here's the point. Let me just take you one step farther. Why why would they submit their life to him? And here's the answer. Because he is the Lord. That's why. This is not a man. This is not humanity. This is deity at work. And the only proper biblical response, if you're a young man or a young woman or a young mother or a young father, or a grandparent, is worship. And you worship him, here's why, because he's Lord. In fact, this is what Matthew's gospel has been all about. Jesus is the messianic king, and he was worshiped in his birth by the magi in Matthew 2.2. 2. 
He's worshipped now by these women in his resurrection. And one day in the future, Revelation 5 said, here's what it says there. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And it says in Revelation 5, four living creatures said amen and the seven elders fell down and it says that they worshiped. So here he is. You know what's frightening about that? I mean, it's a call to worship, but all people will be on their knees at one point. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. You either bow now or you bow later, but you will bow. You will bow because of who he is. But here's the greatness of the resurrection, that he is Lord. In fact, the apostles preaching in the book of Acts said that he is both Lord and Christ. And he is that, beloved, by way of the resurrection. So I just ask you this morning, you say, I'm to worship him. I could say that. I should say that. They worshiped him. Here's the real issue. Is he Lord of your life right now? In other words, does he come to have first place, Colossians 1, in every dimension of your life, every relationship you have, is he Lord? So, Scott, what does that mean? Well, just who's the king? Is it him or is it you? Is self on the throne or is he on the throne? Is he on the throne or are you on your own throne and it affects your marriage that way? I mean, either he's on the throne or he's not on the throne. You say, well, Scott, how, do I, how can I tell? Well, listen, do you give your allegiance to the Savior? Do you love the Savior? Do you obey the Savior? Do you read the, the scriptures? Do you worship him? Do you pray to him? Does he give you joy in your heart? And for many of you, I know that's true. But listen, you may be here this morning and you might be saying, well, what do I do? Well, it says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. But you got to confess him as Lord. So what does that mean? Well, that just means if I'm driving a car, is how I look at it. Well, before you're a Christian, you've got your hands on the wheel of the car of life. You've got your hand on the gear of the car of life. You've got your foot on the, the gas and on the brake. You do whatever you want with whoever you want at whatever time you want. It doesn't matter. You're your own king. You're, you're your own uh, ruler, if you will, of your life. But when you come to Jesus Christ as Lord, you slide over from the driver's seat into the passenger seat and the Lord Jesus Christ begins to run your life. He begins to rule in your life. He begins to reign in your life. It certainly doesn't mean you're perfect, but this is the power of the resurrection. And so they worshiped him and they worshiped him because of who he was and who he is, is the Lord. And if you think that that's a doctrine that everybody knows, I'm telling you it's not. I just saw a personal friend walk away from the person of Jesus Christ because he only wanted to recognize his humanity. 
He did not want to recognize his deity. And as I'm studying and as I was praying this morning, I thought, listen, who is he? He's Lord. He's risen from the dead. In fact, you say, who raised him? God the Father raised him. Jesus said, I raised myself up. And the Holy Spirit raised him. All of the work of the Trinity is in this. And so you either worship him or you walk in disobedience. But listen, it'd be my prayer that you submit to him. Because if you submit to him, you say, what will hold out for me on that? You will know the greatest imaginable joy, both in this life and in the kingdom to come. You say, well, Scott, how does that make sense? Because the kingdom of God is paradoxical. He who wishes to save his life, what? loses his life. Jesus said, he who loses his life will save his life and understand the reality of the glory of the kingdom of God. Listen, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you give him allegiance, you give him ownership, you make him Lord. He already is Lord. You confess him as Lord and you'll be able to be with these ladies and worship him. But listen, beloved, don't we have a great savior? This is the testimony of the word of God. It is to be believed. He died. He was raised on the third day.